Welcome to the Move Against Cancer podcast, the podcast that aspires to support and inspire people to move, exercise and live an active and fulfilling life despite a cancer diagnosis. The podcast where we share the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. We know that many people are scared to stay active during cancer treatment. We know that for some, cancer can take away the hope that comes from dreaming of a future. And we know many people diagnosed with cancer feel isolated and lonely. We hope that by sharing the stories of others finding their way through cancer, the Move Against Cancer podcast will provide hope, support and a sense of empowerment to anyone living with and beyond cancer. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Move Against Cancer podcast. My name is Lucy Gossage. I'm an oncologist. Um, I'm a bit of a sports nut and I'm co-founder of 5K Your Way Move Against Cancer. Um, I can't believe we've got to episode five already. Um, We have been literally blown away um, by some of the comments that we've had from you guys who have listened to us um, and also by how far it's got. Um, It's amazing when people who don't follow me or us on social media reach out to us and say, oh, I really enjoyed that or I took something from it. Um, So in the last episode, I spoke to the incredible storyteller, Gillian Sewell, um, who's San Lewis died of cancer um, in August last year. Um, it was a really moving interview and we've had some really lovely feedback. Um, Gillian was an incredible speaker. Um, she was so honest. She had me laughing and crying um, in equal measures. Um, We've had some really lovely messages. Gillian Russell uh, has said, as a mum of two teenage boys, I found this joyful, heartbreaking and inspiring in equal measures. Listened while out running. Thank goodness for the rain that masked my tears. Do check out this podcast. Bravo. And then Anna Dingle, I've just listened to this whilst working. I found this so inspiring and helpful at a time when I'm grieving for my mum who died from cancer last year. Gillian and her family are simply remarkable in how they dealt with Lewis's diagnosis and his death and must be so proud of him. Sarah Jackson, incredibly moving, uplifting and powerful conversation. Thank you for sharing. Um, Matthew Ding, wow, just finished a wet walk on the downs listening to this pod. Can't recommend it enough, but almost had to stop a group of lads on a DV hike and ask for some tissues. Um, and Physio Philip, who works in a, um, a children's hospice, I think, said, wow, at Move Charity, another astounding podcast. Thanks, Gillian and Lucy, for sharing your very personal conversation. Powerful, moving and full of joy and love for Lewis. As Lucy says, we will all be affected by cancer. These podcasts normalise and open important conversations. Um, People sometimes think I'm an extrovert. I promise you I am not. And I am so out of my comfort zone doing these interviews. And I know Gemma feels exactly the same. Um, I feel like I'm putting myself out there um, and, and getting messages like that, showing that by sharing the stories of people, um, we are making a difference. Is It's really humbling. Um, and I think the, you know, the take home from all those messages about, about Gillian's um, conversation, the conversation we had, was that actually despite the awful, unbelievable sadness, um, her words are also brought quite a lot of joy um, and, and li- are, are also life affirming. And um, yeah, that's really lovely to, to hear that. Um, and Gillian, wow, thank you again. Um, so this week I am joined by Sally Hurst. Now, Sally is incredibly self-effacing and she, when we were offline um, talking about the podcast, she described herself as just a normal working mum in her 40s. But as you'll find out, she is actually anything but normal. So Sally had bone cancer in her 20s just before she was about to get married. So she had chemo. She then had to have her leg amputated above the knee. And then she had another several several months of chemo. That's pretty big treatment. Um, Sally finished treatment. She got married. She learned how to walk with a prosthesis, which we'll talk about. It's easier said than done. She then had two kids, which she didn't think she'd be able to do. She went back to work as a broadcaster. She started cycling. She made it to the GB paracycling team um, and raced uh, on the elite cycling team, paracycling team for, um, for some time. And then she got diagnosed with breast cancer just after she'd completed her 10-year follow-up for osteosarcoma. Um, So Sally epitomizes someone who has and is moving against cancer. Um, I'm really excited to speak to her. Um, And yeah, let's uh, let's look forward to this interview. Um, Sally, thank you for joining us. Um, It's really 
really lovely to meet you. Um, so when we were when we were thinking about um, doing a pod and and kind of trying to think what we wanted to achieve with it, um, we we thought what we really wanted to do was share the stories of ordinary people in inverted commas doing extraordinary things despite cancer. Um, and you seem to me to be the absolute epitome of this. Um, so <laughs> you're a mum of two two kids. Um, you work as a broadcaster. You cycled for GB cycling team. Um, and you do all of this despite having had two completely unrelated cancers. Um, you've lost a leg. You've lost both your breasts. Only you actually superwoman. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I definitely don't feel like superwoman. I feel um, very tired a lot of the time and, and um, you know, just just like a, a general middle-aged mum juggling things, really. Um, but I, I suppose I... Uh, I've had some brilliant experiences and I've been lucky to have a lot some opportunities that come uh, have come my way because of cancer I suppose like the cycling wouldn't I never would have been on team GB if I hadn't lost my leg so um I guess I've seen you know I've, I've sort of taken opportunities as as they've come up and I've been lucky in that respect so but yeah I'm just a, a knackered middle-aged mom like like everyone else in the 40s just kind of trying to juggle work and kids and pets and everything else so before starting you had the the dog walk with drop of dropped off the dog we've got to finish so you pick up your kids from school it kind yeah. of sums up how you live your life juggling everything in in, a, in and around um everything else that's going on um yeah so you had you had osteosarcoma, which is cancer of the bones, um, when you were in your twenties. Is that right? Yeah, I was twenty six, um, and I was about to get married. I was just um, I was working in broadcasting then, but um, so just sort of having a you know a totally normal life with normal ambitions and everything, and just um, started. I was a, I was really into dancing at that point, and I started getting this knee pain. Um, which was put down to a sporting injury. So it took quite a long time to get diagnosed. Um, so having a bone cancer at 26 is obviously a huge shock. And then um, being told that you're going to have to lose your limb as well, um, which also came as another massive shock. So it's it's just, um, yeah, yeah, it, it was something that you could just couldn't, you couldn't predict at 26 and something that I would, but unfortunately you know does happen um it is a it is a cancer that affects primarily teenagers and um and young people so um yeah it's it it's it's not something it's not a club that I ever wanted to be in obviously but it's um yeah it's it's something that I had to just deal with at a time when when really in your 20s you just want to be like getting on with your career and you're socializing and that kind of thing really and you were just about to get married when you were diagnosed. Yeah, yeah, we had our wedding booked, so we had to cancel our wedding. Um, and um, just, I mean, I was in hospital for a year um, because it's like the sort of chemotherapy that you have to have with osteosarcoma is is the sort that you have to have as an inpatient. So, um, uh, yeah, I just I was I had my operation my amputation in Birmingham and then chemotherapy in Leeds so I was just going between the two hospitals and yeah it was horrendous really it's um it's a really a really kind of tortuous treatment it is really um it is really difficult it is really difficult so I yeah I treat osteosarcomas and I uh, god it it's it's really tough watching fit young people go through such brutal chemotherapy and then obviously often have to have really quite drastic surgery um to to parts of their body um so can you remember what what were your reactions when you were told that you needed it because you've got an above knee amputation so they how much of your leg have they have have you had taken off yeah so it's above knee so it's about um I've got um I guess like halfway between knee and um the top of the leg so sort of halfway down the thigh um is is the level so it's fairly high level um and I, I mean initially I was going to have the the limb saving 
operation, which is the sort of standard treatment where they put the prosthetic implant inside so you don't lose your leg. But because um, the chemotherapy didn't work initially, so it, it actually the tumour actually grew during the chemo, so they we had to have the, the amputation. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it is just like... Uh, I kind of remember the day when I was told that I need to have it and it just felt like almost medieval, you know, kind of like amputations are sort of something you think of um, that either happened to people who were in a war or you just, it's not something that you expect in your 20s. So, um, and I couldn't quite think how life could go on with living like that. But that is that is a normal reaction, I think, for people who ha who are being told that they're having something life changing. But that does change. That does change. So I think that's what I would say. Um, you know, the thought of becoming disabled at, at that age is is obviously very difficult. But you adapt and you do change and then so the way I feel now about being an amputee is is very very different um to how I felt you know being given that diagnosis so, so I was um I was talking to a, a young man that I'm treating at the moment who's who's got an osteosarcoma and he we're not sure what kind of surgery he will need but to him um and, and it was I was really so I was really excited about talking to you to him the thought of losing his leg is just the worst thing ever and and he can't he can't get his head around how life could be good if that if that happens um and yeah. you seem to be the the you know just such an amazing example and I was watching you videos of you cycling with one leg and firstly it looks blooming hard work but um yeah it's incredible seeing seeing what you've what you've done and what you've achieved and yeah the GB cycling which we'll come on to that's amazing but actually just the fact that you're a mum and you're juggling work and two kids and you describe yourself as a normal mum with all the normal stresses of a normal a normal mum is is I think that's really inspiring um when you when you were when you were told you were going to lose your leg did you have any I did you know anyone who'd who'd done that did you have any concept of of what it you know that that you would be able to do sports again um no I didn't I, I did know one person um that I'd met through work briefly who was an amputee so I knew that um it was it was possible to be around walking again and, and I remember saying to the doctor so I'll get an artificial leg and I'll walk again. And so that's how I felt about it at the start was just I was immediately focusing on getting that prosthetic limb and walking again. So I'd kind of seen that, but I didn't, I certainly hadn't thought about doing sport and whether that would be um, accessible to me. Um, and no one really tells you about that kind of thing. It's, it's all very focused on just walking again, understandably, I suppose. But, um, you know, I remember uh, sort of after a couple of weeks, maybe after having the amputation, just sitting with my mum and my sister watching Strictly Come Dancing and just absolutely sobbing because I'd loved dancing so much. And then to be actually, and to be watching it, it was, you know, really a programme that I'd always enjoyed and just have that absolute sort of devastation that I was never going to be able to do that again. Um but then you, I suppose you just gradually learn to focus on rather what you can't do. You focus on what you can do. Um, but having said that, you know, I didn't do any sport for seven years after my amputation because I just thought I was just focused on getting back to work, um, getting married as planned, um, walking. And just that was enough. For, for a time but there was like a, there was a bit of me I really did miss having that outlet of sport um and so gradually I just kind of and I suppose it, it was actually that it was London 2012 watching the Paralympics which actually kind of really inspired me to to start looking at sport again um and and sort of having a go and just wit and and I just, you know, just decided to 
to try cycling um and it it is really it is difficult because you know one really there's no one to ask how to do it um so what you soon discover as an amputee when you're cycling is that your your leg your foot doesn't stay on the pedal um so I tried like you know the first time I rode my bike um, my husband just strapped my leg on with a yellow like one of those bungee <laughs> bungee leads um and, and we did that and then it wasn't until I got um involved with British cycling that I started learning how to ride without the prosthetic on um which is a totally different technique really but um so can yeah. you just can you just talk a little bit about your leg because I I suspect most people listening to this don't really have a I, I mean we've probably all seen pictures of you know people in the Paralympics of you know running with a, a prosthesis but how does it actually work how do you clip it on clip it off how do you move it what can how much movement have you got um so it works with um a socket so the socket goes over your stump and then uh, it's, there's like a, a seal that sort of goes over that and then it attaches to your limb with suction so um you you sort of expel the air from your leg and that holds it on but with um with cycling what what tends to happen is because of the position that you're in it doesn't stay on very well so it's it's also it's a similar problem when you're sitting on a bar stool <laughs> is that <laughs> the, um, <laughs> which is another favorite hobby um that the leg starts to slide off just because it's not got the it's just at that funny bent angle um so what I do now when I'm cycling is wear a waist belt as well just for extra support to keep it on um so that's that's just one sort of thing that I've had to learn through trial and error um can you move the leg do you have control over the prosthesis um so the difference between below knee and, and above knee is that be- when you're below knee, you you do have obviously you have control over the bottom of your leg. Whereas when you're an above knee, um, I can only control like my thigh movement. So um, when I'm when I'm cycling, so I, I can like I can get like I can do that push, mm-hmm. but I can't I can't do anything with the bottom bit of my leg. So you're only getting through the pedal stroke. You're getting about tw- you're getting the like a quarter of the pedal stroke then then it's just stuck so it's the other leg that then pushes that through um so yeah that that's the sort of the main difference between if you're baloney you can cycle um fairly you know pretty pretty proficiently because you generally can keep your foot on the pedal and you can also power through your knee joint um whereas with above knee you just you're just basically getting that 25 percent of the of the wheel rotation um and it's your other it's it's your it's your other leg that's doing all the work really what happens if you're on a hill and you stop how do you restart is that must be really hard so, you go back down to the bottom of the hill <laughs> <laughs> have you um, had any accidents where the leg oh, has loads yeah loads i mean when i was training um and having to do like hill repeats and things and if you see a, if there's a red light towards the top of the hill and you're thinking, please don't change, please don't change. And of course it changes to red just as you're reaching. Well, I have to stop. Um, you know, I can't, I can't start again on the hill. So I'd have to go down to the bottom of the hill. And there's been loads of times when I've, I've, um, I've actually just fallen off because I've run out of gears up yeah. a big hill and just, and also I can't, I can't unclip very quickly either, and I've got to make sure that I'm when I stop, I go, I put my leg out to the side of my sound leg because I can't unclip the prosthetic leg. So um, there's been loads of times when I've run out of gears, not been able to unclip properly, and just like flipped, just 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 stacked it, and you just I'm always like looking out for a bit of soft grass to land in or something (laughs) what kind of um what kind of reaction do you get when people see you cycling do you do you tend to cycle with the prosthesis now I do now yeah yeah because it's for recreational cycling it's it is easier because obviously you can get on and off and you can go to a cafe stop and you know um so when I was training 
um, because of the class the classification that I was in I had to ride without a prosthetic so um, I did I did used to ride without a leg on training but it, it was very difficult and I relied on other people to sort of um, give me a bit of a push start and um, if you're on a ride and you get to a junction I'd find it very difficult to start again so during a race it's not a problem because you're not stopping <laughs> um, until you get to the end but obviously when you're training stopping and starting at junctions that was really difficult so I used to I had some really good um, club mates in in my cycling club who would um, like just stop next to me at a junction and just give me a bit of a shove to get started again and things like that so yeah, um, I guess if you've only got one leg you unclip to stop to support yourself and then to get yeah. going you have to take that off the ground and you've got no momentum yeah exactly you've got to give yourself a big push with your leg and then quickly get it clipped in and quickly do a revolution to get going and if you just miss it as you know it's quite it's it's difficult to always get your foot in first time then you just you're not going anywhere are you so oh um <laughs> I think yeah. it's fascinating because we never I, I've never really thought about you know you watch the Paralympics I've never really thought about how people actually manage to maneuver themselves and and to do what you do how how yeah. hard was it like when you learn to walk again how how hard was that and what kind of support did you get to do that um very little actually um th th there was a physio at the limb center um and they sort of taught me the basics of like putting the leg on putting the leg off getting up um getting up from a chair doing a few steps and you do and you start off within the bars they've got like some parallel bars which you hold on to um and just practice walking in those but once you've got going they pretty much leave you to just work it out yourself really so I just started with two sticks and then went to one stick and then no sticks. So just practice. And I think it did obviously benefit me that I was young and fairly fit and active at the time anyway. So um, I think I did, you know, I think I did did do, you know, pretty well to, to get going with it again. How long did it take you from, because obviously, well, people won't know, but you you have the surgery and then I'm assuming you had quite a lot of chemo after that, which it's like whack yeah. you when you're down, just keep, keep yeah. whacking you. Um, but how long do, do you think it took you to to be able to walk kind of semi-decent semi distances? Um, probably a year or so. I mean, yeah, like you say, during chemotherapy, I did I did get given a limb, Um pretty quite soon after my amputation but I didn't really start learning to walk properly until I'd finished chemotherapy because it was just too exhausting um so I think I finished I finished chemo in the December and then started learning to walk again in the January and actually got married in the May because we'd rescheduled and by May I was I walked down the aisle like just holding on to my dad but then I did then have I was probably walking with one stick at that point um for most of the time but then when we went on a honeymoon in the August I was only using a stick for like rough ground and things like that um so most of the time now um I don't use a stick but because I although it, it just just depends I think the, the other thing that people don't understand about amputees until you become one is that every day is not as good as there are some days when your leg just doesn't seem to fit properly and that you, you might have um sores rubbed onto the stump mm -hmm. which make it really painful you get like little infections like folliculitis and things that just mean you can't wear your limb for a couple of days so there are days you know it doesn't matter how fit you are or whatever there's just days when some sometimes you just can't wear it and you're back to crutches or a wheelchair or whatever but um so, yeah, I think that's what I didn't realise. I just kind of thought, you get your limb, you learn to walk, and that's mm. it, you're back to normal. But actually, it's an ongoing it's an ongoing um, process, really, and you have your good days and your bad days with it. Are you, are you glad that you've got the prosthesis and persisted with it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Because I, mean, I have makes... the reason... Sorry. 
no no I just asked because I I've got again I've got young patients who who struggle with it because it is hard at the start and crutches Mm. I I think certainly from from what they tell me is it's a lot easier to use crutches in the short term um yeah and I I I do wonder that Mm. yeah and I do wonder whether we're just not doing enough about kind of empowering people and, and showing showing them what is possible with a prosthesis if 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 they're given the support to persist with it right right at the early days. Yeah, I mean I think I do remember the physio at the limb centre saying to me, you're too getting too good on those crutches. Stop using them because it is it was easier to to do it. And she said she actually encouraged me to use my wheelchair more than the crutches. Um and just did get me going on that. but I think for me um I really I really wanted to use that limb partly from um a visual point of view I wanted to look okay you know I wanted to look normal as yes mm-hmm. I wanted to look like I used to look like um and so when I started I was very like uh, I was very keen on having like one of these covers that looks like skin and I wanted to blend in and I just wanted to look like an um any other 26 year old so that was very important to me at that time so I, I suppose that helped because I wanted to that gave me the incentive to want to walk obviously for the mobility but also just just to to look look like I used to look um I suppose now I've gone the other way when I wear a, a limb that's very like me- mechanical looking and robot like because I prefer to sort of be proud about who who I am now um but that's a real um, that's a real kind of evolution of how you feel about yourself I think and sport has played a big part in that actually in in making me like feel quite proud about how I look so tell tell us how how did you go into GB cycling? Because you said you didn't do any exercise for for quite a long time. So you have some kids, which um, yeah. is a big thing after osteosarcoma <laughs> treatments. Not uh, you know one of the things that we always counsel people going through that chemo is that it, infertility is a, a very real risk. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was. Um, I mean, that was one of the main things that I was really upset about um I wasn't bothered about my hair I just was like instantly like does this mean I can't have kids because obviously I was about to get married and that was sort of on my my radar anyway um and there wasn't any time to do any of the um egg saving or anything like that so I knew that I was going into chemo and it would just be potluck whether it affected me or not um and about a year after I finished treatment, I did have a scan of my ovaries, and they said, like they're completely inactive. Like you, you they they said if you know you're not going to be able to have your own children, you'll have to have egg donation or something like that. And I was absolutely devastated, um, and just yeah, just felt just felt dreadful about it. Absolutely awful. Um, and so I got a dog, <laughs> um, and um, and literally within four months was pregnant. So I don't know how that. <laughs> Obviously, I do know how it happened, but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, just it that felt like a total miracle to me. You know, my first child was um, because I was told like literally four months earlier that I'd, uh, there was no chance that you know my ovaries were completely inactive so I must have missed one I don't know <laughs> <laughs> and it's, when you when you you know when you look back and you think at 26 year old you told that you're going to lose your leg you might not be able to have kids you're going to lose your hair you're not going to be able to get married and it, those conversations you just no 26 year old would ever ever imagine or should have to have those and and looking back are you are you proud of the way that you you've come through it you know however many years down the line um yeah I am I mean I wasn't at the time I think at the time I really um beat myself up actually about how I felt I wasn't coping very well um so when I was getting upset for instance, watching Strictly Come Dancing, I'd be saying, like, why am I getting so upset? This is so annoying. Like, I don't want to be like this, but I don't want to get upset every time I watch Strictly Come Dancing. So I was quite um, harsh with myself, I think. Um, and partly that was 
partly that was a positive thing because being harsh with myself meant that I set high standards for my recovery and wanting, you know, pushing myself to walk, pushing myself to go back to work, um, you know, just trying to get doing things, but also um, not allowing myself time to properly grieve for for the loss um, and probably set me back quite a way mentally and emotionally I didn't really come to terms with it for probably quite a few years after even having my children really it all happened quite quickly obviously my first child was not planned um so it it happened very quickly that it was amputation chemo child one you know going back to work Mm. so I didn't really process it all until later um and but go, getting into sport and doing that really helped me kind of come to terms with it. And so, so now when I look back, I do I actually think yes, actually you did cope with it really well because people kept saying, "Oh yeah, you seem fine." Like you know, oh, haven't you done really well? Like you're back at work, isn't this? And inside, I was feeling terrible and feeling you know. And I did. I would. I would say looking back as well that I did go. I was quite depressed for quite a long time, but mm. sort of but hid it, masked it quite well at, at work and things. Um, and I have had a lot of counselling. I've had a lot of, psycho, um, you know, input from psychologists and things, which has really helped. So it's, um, I think, I think outwardly I've always appeared to cope very well, but perhaps um, internally have struggled as as you would expect really and I think I'm able to like look at myself now and think that that's okay that that was part of the process and I needed to do that and so I'm a lot kinder to myself these days um and if I feel if I'm feeling sad about about things like having another mastectomy and things recently I allow myself to feel sad and not not feel I don't feel I think it's it's quite it's not always helpful when you tr- when people say you need to stay positive all the time. I think sometimes you need to um, allow yourself to grieve and allow yourself to um, feel the loss, um, and and then become and then and then rebuild and become and have that positivity. Um, I think sometimes we need to like embrace that um, mm. grieving process really to come to come through it. It's really hard. It's really hard as a doctor, actually, knowing how to how to to judge that. Because I I'm always more worried with when I when I have patients who who are just kind of you know gung ho, getting on with it, not not pausing to to dwell on the enormity of what's happening to them, and that always always raises alarms for me a, a little bit. Because at some point it it has to be processed and it has to be dealt with. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I, the other thing that I see quite often is is people who are having the treatment want to protect the, the people that they love going through it, and um, kind of often often open up to the nurses or sometimes to me, and and yet put on this brave face to to their partner or their parents or whoever it is that that is close to them. Yeah, yeah, and I think I did that. Um, it's a it's a coping mechanism, isn't it, to keep ploughing on through while you're in the real um, thick of it. Um, but like having a psych a psychologist that I could speak to and about like the dark stuff, the, the stuff that I didn't really want to worry family and friends with was really helpful. Um, so it's definitely something that I would advise if you can have that kind of input and support. That really does help because you don't you don't want to talk about death to your your partner and things like that. You want to you, you but you need to you need to talk to someone about it so mm. it's good to have that outlet and um I've definitely found found that throughout just having like someone that you can just like get out get all the um awful stuff out to without judgment I think because mm. your family always try to fix it fix the problem and sometimes you don't want it fixing you just want to express it and was that a psychologist that you found yourself or was it through sport uh, no, it was actually through the hospital. It was um, an oncology, you know, through through oncology, um, okay. referred me. So that was really really helpful. Um, and I I saw her. I saw the same psychologist uh, for the osteosarcoma, and then later when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, 
Um, so we I'm haven't even touched on this. So yeah, so so not only did you have, I think you'd you'd pretty much finished your ten years of first ten years of follow up for the osteosarcoma. Is that right? Yeah, I was um, oh five. I was like five. I was tw- like twelve years. Yeah, so I'd 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 sort of discounted it ever coming back. I think, you know, when you first have cancer, you're worrying all the time about it coming back. But when it got to 10 years, I thought, right, that's it now. That is done. And, you know, that that's me done now. I'm just keep, I'm just, I'm just having a normal life now. But um, yeah, 12 years after, so it was, it was after I'd done all the cycling with GB and then um, suddenly out of the blue, just uh, find a lump and then, um, yeah, and it all starts again. Yeah, yeah. So it was um, a horrendous shock to have that again when I just – and I almost felt like it was my fault because I'd stopped worrying and I thought, like, the, maybe the worrying was the protection, <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, is rubbish, but that's just yeah. the way your mind works with it. Um, and I think as well you think, well, because I've had one – when I'm young, that that must mean surely it's like not my turn again. Um, but yeah, apparently there's no guarantee. <laughs> so, yeah. Was it was it harder the second time, or e- or easier, or just different? Um, just uh, uh, it was just it just hard. It was hard because um, I'd um, I'd got two children and they were younger, so I felt. Um, that I had to ha- sort of ha- like hide the um, emotions and things from them. So, um, and obviously trying to look after children while going through treatment isn't it, isn't it diff- isn't easy. Um, and I think, but I mean, the treatment wasn't as wasn't as brutal. Like the chemotherapy was, it was it was tough, but it wasn't as brutal as the osteosarcoma chemo. So. Um, and I did like both times. I've been very, very lucky with um, support from friends and family, and um, I've just had like a huge, like wave of lovely people kind of getting me through. So I've been very lucky like that. And I do feel um, like people who've who've had to go through treatment during COVID as must just be awful because you've not not able to have that support network so yeah it's just horrible in any any cancer diagnosis is just horrible Mm. um but I suppose with I I suppose the difference was that with when I had osteo at 26 there was no one else in my age group of my friends who was in the same boat at all they all they were all just carrying on with their careers and their lives and holidays and I felt very isolated, even though I, even though I had lots of support, I felt very different to them, and I felt, um, you know, I felt estranged from them just because our my life was nothing like theirs. Whereas having breast cancer at thirty eight, although it's still young, it's um, there there are other there were there was an instant like support of other younger women with breast cancer that I could. Um, get in contact with and have that support so I didn't feel as isolated going through it um, the second time round. and I think breast cancer is good for good for that in that there, there are a lot more support groups and networks um, than there are with the rarer cancers mm. um, like osteo. I think yeah I think that's really true because I, I treat sarcomas and, and I always think it's so hard because they're so rare partly because there's not there's not really good evidence as well like like you have with breast cancer um you you said like now you're you're proud of your prosthetic leg um what about it, it, is body image something you've you've struggled with because you've lost I think you've lost both your breasts have you got reconstructions yeah. or yeah so I've got implants so yes I do like from you know the surgeon's done a brilliant job and <laughs> look you know it looks decent um but you know I've lost the sensation I don't have any sensation um so there is there is a loss there um and yeah but I um you know in terms of my leg I feel um I, I've, I've totally come to terms with how I look and feel quite 
comfortable and confident and um and like I say we'll we'll wear a limb that's obviously a limb rather than some covering that's pretending to be skin because uh, I actually find people stare less at you if they can if they can see instantly what why you're limping or why you look a bit different if they can see then they tend to just look once and that's it whereas before they may be like looking at you for longer wondering oh she hurt a foot or is she you know why, why is she limping so I, I prefer just to have it immediately obvious um and you know what I like I and maybe it's like getting older as well like you know hitting the menopause and not actually caring so much about <laughs> how you know what other people think and just um embracing how I look and um you know that I, I am pr- I am proud of I am proud of how I look and I am really comfortable with it and really happy I mean yeah obviously you know if I had the choice I'm not one of these people who thinks having cancer is a blessing I, I don't I think it, you know it, it's been really hard but I I think um I also have come to terms with with how I look and um obviously if I could have my leg back I would have it back in an instant just to go dancing again but um I'm just really focusing on what I can do rather than what what I can't do and I think we're gonna we'll put a link to a clip I found of you cycling um when you were doing the GB cycling because it's it's really incredible seeing you I do a lot of for those who don't don't know me I do a lot of cycling and I cannot imagine cycling like I mean long how how long was your longest ride with one leg um I did uh I did like an eight, I did like eight to nine miles once and, and I was like why didn't you just do a hundred like <laughs> but you've got to double that because that was 89 miles with one leg so that's like 100 and I can't do the math but yeah, nearly 180 yeah, well, that's, yeah that's what I think that's how that's how I think about it <laughs> um yeah um I wish I had done 100 because I'd like I'm not fit enough anywhere fit enough to get anywhere near that now but yeah um one day challenge yeah <laughs> um I'm very much I'm very much a recreational cyclist these days and I, I use a electric bike quite a lot now um which I'm totally unashamed of because um I just feel like that puts me on a par with um yeah non-dis- non-disabled cyclists um and then allows me to keep up um and I did when I was riding with one leg I did keep up with you know my cycling club other riders but that was just because I was battering myself training you know every day and now I just I don't have the energy the time or the inclination to like hurt myself anymore you're you're a mum with two kids I don't think many many mums with two kids do do you like do you look back at your you know do you look back at your your time as an elite athlete and you you said to me before the start or I'm not an elite athlete anymore you can't call me that but but you were you rode for Great Britain paracycling and you did some world cups and do you look back at that and think did I really do that yeah I do I do like I even I mean it's not even that long ago I've I've retired in like 2016 um but it feels like a lifetime ago it just um the idea of getting up now at five o'clock in the morning to get an hour in on the turbo before we're I mean you probably still do this but um it's just not it wasn't it wasn't ever going to be sustainable long term with a job and two kids and everything else as well but um for the time that I did it I mean I have to say it was like the it was the most exhilarating exciting time of my life so far like because it's just like a dream isn't it to be on like to be competing for GB and to be training at the velodrome in Manchester and um and that is why I was so motivated. So I would, I would just, I wouldn't even think about getting up at five o'clock in the morning. I'd just do it, and I'd put in all the miles, and I'd just, and I loved being part of the team, and I loved having that training program, and just like having someone tell me what to do. Because now I find like because I have to think about it, I'll talk mm. myself out of it. <laughs> um, so I absolutely, you know, it was such an exciting time of my life. Um, and you know just you know competing going to South Africa and competing there and in Italy and you know you just wouldn't do that sort of I wouldn't have had any of those experiences without all the rubbish that came before it as well so um 
it was it was amazing it was it was amazing and it's like it's something that I, I am really proud of now and for a long time well for for a bit afterwards I was I was more like ashamed that I'd, I'd got binned off the team than, <laughs> and, and I was really like a bit sheepish about it but now I'm like yeah you know what it was really exciting and really an achievement and you know something that I can talk about with my kids and stuff like and there's something I guess about <laughs> finding yeah pushing yourself and seeing how good you can be and how far it, how far you can get yeah, I was um, I was cycling with a friend yesterday who's um, she's a pro and she's just about to to race an Ironman, um, and I was cycling out there and I'd had a I had a bad couple of days at work and I was just like, I knew she was she'd sent me all these positive messages about her you know her smashing up her last session. I thought like, I really miss I really miss that feeling of knowing that you've given everything in training and now it's showtime yeah. and you're ready to empty it. Um, yeah. yeah and doing that that phrase of emptying the tank that we always use but you know empty the tank but yeah I really um I was I, I think I was I was one of these athletes that really enjoys training but doesn't enjoy the competition as much I've I, I really got really badly nervous around competitions um but I, I loved training um and I loved training camps I mean I'd love to go like I'd love to go back in time just to go on another training camp <laughs> yeah, and, like, just, yeah I just love it you know just that t- that team atmosphere that being with um just having an adventure like it just felt like because up till then it been you know it's all work and kids and t- making the tea and you know and just to have that like a week um on a camp with other people and like other disabled people as well, like you know, just people like me, um, and get you know, you know, you need just getting up in the morning, you're going on your bike. It's gonna, you're gonna really hurt when you get back, but then it's gonna feel great, and I just love that, and I, I really miss that, um, uh, like the team atmosphere and and, and having that. I love that. And you kind of fell into it, the the GB cycling. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Again, it was kind of through work because I got sent to do. Um, it was after it was after London, and and they were doing um like a an event where you could try out lots of Paralympic sports. You know, like a kind of recruitment thing. So I got sent for work to do a report on it. Um, and it was while I was there that I was just ended up talking to British Cycling, and they said, "Oh well, we haven't got any above knee amputees on the team." Ha ha. Um. Do you want to come and have a? Do you want to come and have a like a trial? And I'm no, I'm <laughs> like thirty, like full time working mum. Like no, and then but it kind of just planted that seed that I I was like oh well maybe I could like you know yeah Paralympians are older than Olympians and you know you can start later and I just kind of like started to do it and went for the test and then it it just sort of went from there really. And so it's just having that. Um, it's just saying yes to an opportunity which presented itself, and it took me a long way. It didn't take me all the way. I really, you know, obviously my aim was to get to Rio, and I didn't do that. But it um, it ha- took me on some amazing experiences, and um, yeah. So so I, so I often think, you know, I often will say just take, say yes to things that are a little bit scary sometimes mm. because you just don't know how where it'll take you or or the opportunities that it might it might open up I think that is that is such a good lesson uh, it's something I, it's, I try to live my life by that and it means that you put yourself out of your comfort zone far too often and sometimes it ends in an epic fail but sometimes it ends in amazing adventures um I think it's yeah that's a that's a good way to end Sally I I think you undersell yourself like you you are the epitome of um of someone who's who's just yeah made incredible stuff out of what on paper sounds the most shitty situation um so I I think there will be lots of people um, around the country at some point over the next however many years facing being told that they might have to lose a limb and you you've proven that it's not the end of the world what what would you say to to anyone in that situation I'd say 
yes, it's um, difficult and it's a horrendous thing to face and allow yourself to grieve, allow yourself to feel angry and sad and and but there but also know at the back of your mind that you will adapt um and you will find it easier as time goes on um and it will become just a part of your history and a part of your backstory and not everything about who you are um and it will it will get easier it will it really will there's you know, you've just got to you've just got to battle through the 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 path to to get to get to that point and it does take time but you will get there thank you thank you so much for talking to us so I have long admired Sally since I came across a blog she wrote some time ago and I'm even more of a fan now Sally you epitomize resilience tenacity and just getting on with life whatever it throws at you um people often think that working in oncology must be depressing but actually most of the time it's really uplifting I'm continuously amazed by the resilience of humans who are throwing tough punches. And I hope that listening to Sally talk, you just get a little glimpse of this, this resilience that I see every day at work. Um, and I also hope that anyone who listens to this chat who may be facing life-changing surgery or has had just had some life-changing surgery can take some hope from this chat that life can go on and can be really good after it. Um, Sally, you are one wise lady and your kids must be hugely proud of you. Um, listening back so I came to work today, so I absolutely hate listening to myself and I, I really have to force myself to do it. Um, but I realised we jumped around quite a lot in that conversation. Um, and I also realised that I have a tendency to ask several questions at once. So I need to work on that. Um, I think I need to be a bit more patient. Um, but there's just so much to cover. And honestly, every single person I've spoken to so far, I could have spent hours with them. As I said at the start, I really am way out of my comfort zone doing these interviews. But honestly, I learn so much each time I do. It's such a huge privilege to be able to chat to people one-on-one. -on -one. So not as a doctor chatting to a patient where conversations are always on, on a very different level. Um, I'm definitely learning huge amounts about what it's really like to be on the other side of cancer. Um, and I can't tell you how grateful I am that people are opening up to me and that people are listening to us. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening. We love, love, love your comments. Honestly, it means so much to us. Um, so please, if you do listen, if you've got any feedback, good or bad, give us a nudge on social media. Um, and if you can spare the time to give us a like and a rating wherever you get your pods, um, we'd be hugely grateful because I think that's apparently what makes us kind of more accessible to more people. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great couple of weeks. We've got a brilliant guest uh, coming up in two weeks time and I'm really excited about doing some research uh, before we chat with him. Uh, thanks very much guys. Bye.